guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And this uh, week, we're going in search of <laughs> offshore oil. Yes, indeed. I had to say the title, like, but I can't do a Leonard Nimoy impersonation, but Leonard Nimoy had that old show that was like, in search of Bigfoot, in search of uh, UFOs, etc., which are admittedly a lot more fantastic than what we're going to talk about. But what we're going to talk about is pretty interesting when you get It is pretty it. interesting. Yeah. Because you know what? There's a whole lot of oil out there and a whole lot of it is buried underneath the ocean. And do you guys have any idea how people uh, extract oil from the ocean? I really, I, until we edited your article and you wrote that article on how offshore drilling works, I was a little hazy on the details. Yeah. It's, I mean, one way to look at it is uh, people are always, uh, like people are really fascinated by shows like Breaking Bad and like news reports about, about uh, you know, people with addictions mm-hmm. uh, because of the links they go to to uh, to feed that addiction. Ah, and, you know, people have pointed out like that we're uh, a, you know, a civilization addicted to oil and the lengths that we will go to satisfy that, that addiction. You need to look no no further than than offshore oil drilling because it's amazing the industry that goes into this. Yeah, it's a pretty complicated and complex affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys know, and I'm, I think a lot of us are familiar with this, of course, because you know, of the recent BP oil spill. Um, so we consume a heck of a lot of oil. Just to give you a ballpark figure, if you uh, are looking at estimates from the CIA World Factbook, a handy resource, mm-hmm. if ever there were one, um, the U.S. consumes 19.5 million barrels per day. And worldwide, I think that's about 80 million, mm-hmm. um, according to their figures. So, yeah, to maintain that pace of consumption, and I know not everybody is interested in maintaining that pace of consumption, but oil companies certainly are. And, and to maintain, you know, that, that amount of oil, we gotta search for it all the time. It's, it's a full-time endeavor. Yeah. And the easy to find oil tends to go first, you know, or the, the stuff that's either easy to find or not, you know, in a, in a place that's just really cut off by laws and regulations. So, um, you know, it gets to the point where you're like, okay, we're gonna have to go after oil. Under the, uh, sir, the the bottom of the ocean. Right. I've already dug up all these holes in my backyard, mm-hmm. found a couple gushers. Now we're really going to have to expand the search to, say, the North Sea or something, right. some crazy environment like that, you yeah. know, with waves pitching and rolling. And I can only imagine what it would be like to work on one of those rigs, by the way. Yeah, it's like constant uh, inclement weather there. And, of course, all this makes sense because we live on a water world. I mean, we're, it's mostly ocean. So most of the oil, guess what, has ocean on top of it. Right. So I thought it'd be fun to take a step back and look at the history associated with uh, offshore oil and some of the equipment that goes along with it. So, you know, just in case you guys have forgotten what oil is, it all started, you know, a couple million years ago when oil and natural gas started making their way back to the Earth's surface, right? Yeah. Well, more than a couple, more like between 10 and 600 million. Indeed. And that is more than a couple. So oil started off as plankton. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, the plankton are these tiny little animals that died in the ancient seas, and they floated on down to the seafloor. Kind of a peaceful, it doesn't sound like a bad way to die, just kind of swaying your way down to the ocean floor. Yeah, I can't, you know, picture like sediment in a swimming pool drifting down to the bottom. Yeah, it sounds kind of peaceful. And uh, all these plankton wind up covered with sand and mud. Mm-hmm. And so you have this oxygen-free environment going on, it's anaerobic, and you have a slow cooking process that's going to start taking place. And, and by, by slow, of course, we mean millions of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, all that heat and pressure is going to eventually transform those tiny little plankton into uh, oil, mm-hmm. you know, in the form of liquid, gas, and solid petroleum. And, and when it 
forms in these spots. Uh, these spots are called traps, and they're they're capped in traps. That rhymes. Uh, under thick layers of rock. Yeah. And then, of course, just a quick review. You're you're going to call your liquid petroleum oil, your gaseous petroleum, natural gas, and your solid stuff is going to be found in uh, oil shale or tar sands. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, all this biomass ends up being converted into this other substance. And for ages, it's just down there. But then eventually human beings start noticing this stuff. Well, I guess animals probably noticed it beforehand because they would get trapped in it, say, the, the you know, the tar pits and, and all that. Have you um, ever seen the tar pits, by the way? Just in cartoons and, <laughs> and the like. Just like the episode where the Simpsons get stuck in it. Yeah. I would like to visit them. They're in L.A., the La Brea tar pits, among others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there was a Futurama where I think Mel Gibson's, uh, no, Sylvester Stallone's skeleton was in there or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but then uh, around th- uh, 347 A.D., um, according to ASTM International, it's a voluntary standard organization that's apparently pretty interested in oil, the Chinese started drilling for it in the ground. Yeah, so Chinese were uh, the big original oil barons. Mm-hmm. And uh, the this, this same piece from uh, ASTM International also mentioned that Persians may have been digging wells by hand back in 1594, which I thought was interesting. I mean, there were talk about, you know, consumption and addiction. Yeah. You know, they're so desperate for oil. They're digging with their hands. Got to get to the oil. Well, I mean, but at the at the time, it probably wasn't really, I'm, I'm thinking much of an addiction as, you know, you know it, like the entire society didn't depend on it. You know, so the Persians were kind of like, probably like, you know, like, hey, this stuff's really cool. Like, you know, doing like parlor right. tricks with it and, you know, that kind of thing. But interesting <laughs> Persian parlor tricks, yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, because they were probably like, this stuff's pretty cool, but I don't know if it'll ever amount to anything, you know. Yeah, and it sure did. Sure changed the Middle East, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So you got a lot happening with oil that century because, as you mentioned in your piece, you have the Spanish conquistadors who observed oil rising to the surface in the Gulf of Mexico, yep. which, of course, is now a huge site of uh, offshore drilling. And oil spills. And, and that was happening back then, too. And then fast forward a couple centuries, and we uh, we hit the first off- offshore oil platform. Yeah, yeah. We'd, we'd already, uh, you know, the, the oil, the, the drive for oil had started up in earnest um, on the ground. And, yeah, the first one was uh, at the end of a wharf. So just sort of barely, like, you know, it's kind of like the kid getting up his courage to go into the ocean and, like, putting his feet in, you know, a little at first. Like, mm-hmm. we started off on the wharf. And then we gradually, uh, you know, got up our courage to go a little, a little farther out. Yeah. So we're going on these piers and then we started making artificial islands. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, 1928, you have a Texas oil man and he, uh, he starts up the first mobile oil platform for drilling in the wetlands. Yeah. I, I think I saw a picture of this when I was, uh, writing the article, uh, you know, and it's the kind of thing, it's kind of as basic as you can imagine, like a barge that's been, that someone put an oil rig on top of and just, you know, float it out there and start drilling. Yeah, simple affair, but it, it definitely set the standard for what was mm-hmm. to come. And so we just kept moving farther and farther, like Robert was saying, like a kid wading farther and farther out into the ocean. We just kept pursuing the oil into the depths. And back in 1947, a consortium of oil companies um, built the first one that, sure enough, you couldn't see from land anymore. And that was located again in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and today they're enormous. Uh, some of these are enormous. They really uh, are. Yeah. And you really have to, like, uh, I do recommend checking out the, um, the article online. Because there are some amazing yeah. pictures in there. That one of the, uh, the Norwegian, mm-hmm. the, the, um, drilling platform off the coast of Norway. I mean, it's a city. Yeah. You know, they took the picture at nighttime. It's just alive with lights and it's, it's huge. Yeah. It's probably one of the easiest things I've ever had to find pictures of for an article. 
because photographers love taking photos of oil rigs because in the daytime at night they're just like you have the stark you know barren ocean and then this this enormous construction and and if you look in the article too we also have a uh, um some how stuff works uh, created uh Art, uh, an illustration showing you all the different types, which we're not really going to get into in, in these uh, two podcasts. Uh, but there, we'll hit the highlights. Yeah, but but there's there are like several different varieties, and they're all like some of them are like skyscrapers underwater. You really? know, it's, it's that truly they're they're that huge. Yeah, so things things progressed. I mean, we started off with you know kind of piers and stuff, and now we have these just enormous oil rigs. And uh, according to a May 2010 article in the Week. There are now some 6,500 offshore oil and gas installation worldwide. And about 4,000 of those, where are they? Gulf of Mexico. You bet. So you're probably wondering, how do you, you know, these things are expensive. These things, um, you know, are, are enormous. How do you figure out where you're going to park one? You can't just, you can't just take them out anywhere and be like, all right, this looks like a good spot. Boys, drop the drill. No, you've got to, you've got to seek out the spot. You can't just fire your rifle, uh, into the underbrush and expect it to come a bubbling crude. Yeah. And uh, so we have several technologies that are really um, useful for that. Uh, for instance, we have... Sniffer equipment. Yeah, yeah. This is, these are, this is really interesting stuff. And this, can, this is used both on land and... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. This is used both from airplanes flying above uh, the, the surface of the earth and also uh, in the water. Okay. And what these do is they, they sniff molecular signatures of trapped hi, um, hydrocarbons okay. uh, floating in either the air or in the, uh, in the water. Okay. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a sniffer. And That's prob- pretty cool. I didn't know they did it from airplanes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently it's, it's really, yeah, widespread from airplanes. And, uh, and they, I think possibly was, in, was used, was used by airplanes first. But at any rate, it's, I kind of picture a um, device that looks like a big fake nose. Yeah. Totally. Um, you know hanging from the bottom of an airplane or the underneath a ship, but it's, it's a little more technical looking than that. Right. And the problem with this particular equipment, um, is that it can only help find particular kinds of deposits, um, seeping deposits. So mm-hmm. the oil companies are like, well, I don't know if the sniffer's going to work this time. So we better bring some other equipment along. We got to have some other ways of locating traps. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of like a, like a, I don't know, like a, a possum roaming around your backyard, you know, see, you know, he's not going to find the, or a bear, I guess, you know? A bear. Yeah, yeah it's like... okay. I'm waiting to see where you go with this analogy. Sometimes I just love these analogies. <laughs> that, well, yeah, sometimes they get a lot of control. But um, but no, it's kind of like if it's like food. That's, imagine food that's like really well preserved inside of something and, you know, like a bear's not going to smell it. And then there's something that has like a this cracked open. The bear's going to smell that and go right to it. Right? Yeah. So this, this helps us find things, you know, uh, petroleum uh, reserves that are leaking a little bit. But, you know... If it's, if it's really deep and contained, then these aren't going to find it. Right. So, um, another means if that, if that bear food isn't readily available that oil companies are going to employ is, uh, they're going to pull out some magnetic survey equipment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we've, we've gone into, uh, um, and into some of this, uh, in, in recent, uh, podcasts about how, um, the, the actual content of the earth can, uh, can alter Earth's normal magnetic field. Yes. So basically, that's what this is looking for. It's like looking at variations of the magnetic field and using that to determine what's possibly uh, in the interior of the Earth. Right. And surveyors also have another trick in their bag of tricks, and uh, that's seismic surveying mm-hmm. or sparking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell tell us about sparking. Um, this is basically all right. The, the, the principle here is that when you have like sound waves, like a like a shock wave of sound, and it's going to move differently through different types of rock. So um, what they do is they'll have like a boat 
and it'll drag uh, uh, these devices be- um, uh, behind it called hydrophones. Okay, and uh, with the aid of computers, um, they can they can analyze the information that's bouncing back up. Like the the waves go down, they they go through some rock, they hit something, they come back up, and then we analyze um, the return signature, and uh, they can they can analyze it and figure out what again what's hidden underneath the uh, the earth. Yeah, again, I, we're not shamelessly plugging our site, but there is a pretty cool illustration uh, of this on the how offshore drilling works, mm-hmm. and uh, you should check it out if you can't visualize it because sometimes it can be yeah hard to see. Uh, now there is a side effect to this, right? Yeah, this is a good place, I think, to kind of talk about some of the effects of offshore drilling on the environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's going to be noise pollution for surrounding marine creatures and even not so surrounding. Yeah, yeah it can confuse, uh, you know, whales, um, you know, and cause them to beach themselves, which we've uh, we've covered that in a recent podcast as well and on the blogs. Um, yeah, when we have a article about uh, why offshore drilling is so controversial. And the writer, uh, Jennifer Horton, mentioned an instance in which ExxonMobil had to suspend exploration efforts uh, they were doing near Madagascar after uh, more than 100 whales beached themselves. Mm. That's really sad. Yeah. I can't imagine coming across that site. Yeah, it's and it's it's one of those that I think uh, you know everybody's familiar with some of the other ways that um, offshore oil drilling can harm the environment at this point, but this is one that I think often gets kind of forgotten. It, it's important to note, even with all these different uh, tricks that they can uh, they can pull to try and uh, figure out what's uh, underneath the uh, bottom of the ocean, it's still it's 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 still kind of a mystery. They're not going to know for certain until you actually drill. So. They find an area that looks promising. You you know you mark it with a buoy. You uh, you jot down the GPS coordinates. Right, because you don't want to lose that right. site. <laughs> and then this is important too. Make sure you can actually drill there because yes, that is a key yeah. part of the equation. So you're going to have to make sure that you have rights from the you know like from the government, uh, like from the fe- the federal government or the state governments involved or you know whatever you know because because most of the ocean is going to be. Uh, under somebody's domain. Right, because we wouldn't want to give any of you listeners who are, you know, getting ready to go do some <laughs> offshore oil exploring any misinformation on that. Yeah. So, kind yeah. of give you the right procedural steps. That would be a yeah, hobbyist offshore uh, oil drillers. <laughs> it's like, it's a hobby that's limited to like the, the three richest men in the world. Yeah, yeah. When they're not busy flying on or, a spaceship yeah. to you. Or women, like, a, you know, like Oprah or Martha Stewart could do it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, so this brought up an interesting point for me. I wonder if they start the paperwork years and years ahead and kind of know the swath of uh, ocean that they want to patrol for uh, the particular oil deposit. Because you would think that the paperwork and the legalese involved in uh, obtaining that lease mm-hmm. um, for the particular site you're interested in would just take years, right? Yeah. Well, and you know, the oil companies are not above getting estimates for areas that they know they can't drill in. You know, it's like you can look up figures um, – you know, and we have them cited in the um, in the article. Uh, what is it? Five most promising. Uh, oh, offshore, five most coveted. Yeah, 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 that's coveted. Coveted. Sit. And there are you know there are areas like the poles, um, and especially Antarctica, where nobody you know right now nobody's allowed to drill there. But uh, but you know people have estimations about how much is is down there, and they've done the research. So yeah, which reminds me of that article: Who owns the oceans? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they're you know they have no problem with just going ahead and getting a ballpark because they might not be able to drill there now, but you know we're going to want oil you know for a while and you know you think yeah. <laughs> so let's say they get that lease in hand, so they start doing some exploratory drilling, mm-hmm. 
And you got to have, you know, some mobile base of operations. So they set up a mobile drilling platform. Mm-hmm. And typically they'll, you know, set down four temporary exploratory wells and they'll start uh, drilling them over the course of about 60 to 90 days. Um, it's going to take that long to, to drill each well. And your first task, what is this? What do you want to know? You want to know what the heck is in there. Yeah. So you got to get some samples. Yeah, core sample, uh, which is kind of like, I think the analogy I used in the article. Ice cream cake. Yeah. Bust like, it out. Let's, what do you got? All right. So you're a kid, right? And there's an ice, I'm not recommending do this because your mom's going to kill you. Um, but, uh, if, if there's an ice cream cake and you're like wondering, whoa, what, I wonder what's in there? What are the different what? levels? What, I mean, what are the different layers, right? Right. Because you encounter a mystery dessert. You're not sure. Yeah. You know, what is that really sweet stuff inside? Is it molten cherry mm-hmm. or is it, you know, kind of like bean curd? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, the, the, you never know when they're going to surprise you with the bean curd ice cream cake. <laughs> but um, but no, so imagine you took a like clear plastic cylinder yeah, and you just like stabbed it right down in the middle of the cake, right? Okay. And then you removed it. And when you removed it, it had a core sample of the ice cream cake. Right. You'd be able to see yeah. the frosting and the cake part yeah, and, and that, then, that little sprinkly chocolate rocky, you know. Yeah. The, yeah, the rocky road kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, bean curd. Scrap it. Let's just, let's <laughs> let's explore the next cake and see what's in there. So yeah, it's, it's it's a similar thing. Again, it's like each step is 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 these guys checking to see is there something here we can invest in. Right, and it's, and what they're looking for is a show. Is mm-hmm. is what it's called in the terminology. Yeah, and I think that's the old term you tell you know hailing back to like oil blasting out you know of the, uh, the you know the surface kind of a deal. Okay. And once they, once they get that evidence, the drilling stops and the geologists perform all these tests because they want to make sure that what they're going after, what they're spending all this money on is of a quality and quantity that's sufficient to, you know, justify further expenditures. Mm-hmm. So if yeah, it's, they, yeah, they want it to last like a couple of decades generally. Yeah. I think the 10 to 20 years, mm-hmm. um, are the estimates for some, for the lifespan of some wells. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to leave you there because. This seems like a good time to end, and we're doing a two-part series on a on an offshore oil. Yeah, these will probably go up the same week, so you can jump right into the next podcast to find out what's going to happen with this oil now that now that these uh, we've explored it, we found it. the good stuff in the ice cream cake. What are we going to do next? Yeah, you know what I found in the ice cream cake? A letter from a listener. Oh, listener yeah. mail. Oh yeah, I've uh, I've actually got a couple here. All right, all right. Read um, away. What you got? Okay. Um, received an email here from Anne Marie. Anne Marie is a frequent uh, a frequent writer. Yeah. She's been after us, I think, to uh, do a podcast on the scientific method and um, how different podcasts are researched. And this is pretty important yeah. to us. So and let me just say that if we that. do one on scientific method, it's going to be cool. It's, that's one that definitely sounds is actually more interesting than it sounds. Um, Much like offshore oil. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. Well, offshore oil instantly. I I don't know. It, I think offshore oil sounds more exciting than scientific method. Well, yeah, but we can make the scientific method exciting, I think. Yeah. Yes, totally. Totally. Because it is. It's the, it's like the, well. It's the foundation we'll, of science yeah. and how it's executed. Yeah. Well, we'll what is not exciting about that? It's, it's plenty exciting, but we'll get into it. So, yeah. Sorry, okay. Anne-Marie. So Anne-Marie writes and she just says, howdy. I just wanted to let you know that the Putney School in Putney, uh, Vermont, uh, has a tracking solar array that provides power to its net zero field house. Any surplus is sent back to the grid. A neat thing is that on the coldest day of the year last year, the electric bill of the field house was about 
negative $46, meaning that on the coldest day of the year in March, I think, Putney was producing enough power to heat, light, and run the field house and still sell power back to the state. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and she points out that you can check all this out at um, org. So that's pretty cool. That's uh, She's, of course, responding to our recent uh, podcast uh, dealing with the smart grid mm-hmm. and smart grid innovations, where we sort of left it, you know, sent the call out to all the listeners. It's like, hey, have you got some cool tidbits about smart grid technology in action? You know, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, let us know. And uh, people have been letting us know. Thanks. What else you got in there? Uh, and Stop. the other one is one that I meant to read last week from Luke. And uh, Luke uh, wrote in um, about our Space Elevators podcast. The Great Space yeah. Elevator. Did he request it as well? I thought Luke did. Huh. Luke, I thought you did. Correct us if we're wrong. Um, yeah, and he just uh, wanted to point out another concept um, that he uh, had read about. And he sent me the link to it and I was checking it out. Uh, and he said, another concept I discovered while researching space elevators is something called a rolling skyhook. This uh, version would use a giant cable orbiting the Earth end over end with points at, uh, at which the ends near the surface allowing for payloads to be attached and catapulted into space. All right, this, it's, it's kind of hard to picture, it's picture in, you know, without a, a drawing of it, but it's kind of like imagine if you had a giant jump rope. Yeah. Both handles are touching the surface of the Earth, uh, but then uh, the rest of it goes up into outer space. So you could like attach a cable car and ride that sucker up into huh. orbit. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, another take on a very, uh, you know, epic, uh, construction project. Pretty cool. Yeah. So you got any others over there? Are we going to wrap it up? That's it. They just have those two right now. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Uh, as we continue this adventure into offshore oil drilling. Yeah, and if you want to talk about your adventures with offshore oil or your uh, hobby as an offshore oil explorer, um, we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com or hook up with us on Facebook. Uh, we're Stuff from the Science Lab or Lab Stuff over on Twitter. Thanks for listening, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.